I'm John Mooney and welcome to The Dark State. This podcast is brought to you through the generous financial support of our subscribers on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. If you wish to contribute and gain access to more exclusive episodes, please do subscribe. And now, on with the show. What threats will Ireland face in 2022? What about organised crime? Will the drugs problem continue to worsen? Or might we see an increase in terrorism? Might the new IRA swarm again? Or could the various factions of loyalism engage in violence once more? I'm talking about political violence as opposed to extortion and the other types of criminality they are seeped in. And what of national security? Yes, that thorny issue which no one dares to mention at official level anyway. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by the security analyst Declan Power and Tony Harty, a former member of Garda Special Branch. Michael O'Toole, who has voted Crime Correspondent of the Year, is also joining us. I'll be also breaking with tradition to make some contributions of my own. Welcome to this extended edition of The Dark State. Gentlemen, welcome to The Dark State. We're going to discuss the threats which are likely to pose a significant threat in the years ahead, so I have questions for each of our panellists. Declan Power, I'm going to go to you first. Could you give me your thoughts on the continuing problem posed by organised crime? Well, organised crime has has been a significant problem for this state uh, at a domestic level for quite some time. But I think the emerging issue is the linkages that Irish organised criminals are forging with uh, with their counterparts, not just on the continent, but in other parts of the world, uh, particularly Eastern Europe. And I think that's going to be uh, a bigger problem going forward. I think uh, Angada Shikana and Department of Foreign Affairs showed a degree of initiative uh, in how they were dealing uh, with the Kinahan gang in forging links with the Spanish authorities. But the criminals are always going to have the advantage of being able to forge links with a lot of the diplomatic niceties uh, kicked out to touch out of the way. And it, this is something that I think Ireland in particular, and I think also our European Union partners, are going to have to get to grips with uh, and upgrade the linkages that already exist to make them more u- utilitarian uh, at an operational level. And I think that could, be a, that could be a problem if it's not tackled by people who have you know, relevant experience and it's not just left in the hands of um, diplomats and uh, policymakers at civil service level. Michael, what are your thoughts? I, I, I would echo what uh, Declan has said. I've been struck by how, uh, we've, we've known this, that criminals don't really respect borders, but I've just really been struck, even in the last few days, I was reading some stuff from a company, uh, a, a group called Inside Crime, who is, it was a global crime think tank and they were talking about Kenahan, they were talking about the, the super cartel that he was part of so people like Rido Antagi uh, and Fassi uh, uh, Nabu Al-Fassi uh, the fellow who was found here the Dutch Moroccan guy who was found here and extradited over Spain and he, or over to Holland and he's doing time for a murder, an attempted murder I was just really struck by how just that, that nexus and what inside crime I thought was really interesting was they said that it's part of the super cartel, one of the 50 biggest cartels in the world, spent billions of euro worth of uh, Peruvian cocaine in the, the whole of Europe. But it now said that Kenan really effectively 
was the last man standing. So, you know, international law enforcement has chipped away at this cartel, and Kenan does seem to be the last man standing. So I wouldn't be surprised if 2022 bring is the year that we we do get that level of cooperation and we do see Kenan with the end game, the Kenan being kicked out of Dubai and ended up either in Ireland or in Spain. We know Ireland wants to charge him with serious offences, but so did the Spanish. Um, a Spanish uh, police officer said in, in a trial of James Quinn for the Gary Hutch murder that uh, Daniel Kenan ordered that murder. So the Spanish have evidence uh, uh, that they want to put to him and the Guardi have evidence they want to do. And that can only really be done by uh, international cooperation. And I was speaking to the sources last week about it. And really there are efforts in the background. You know that senior Guardi have been over, but I'm also told that diplomats are bavering, bavering away in the background trying to get Kenan kicked out. So, you know, I think it might be a, a big year next year for that level of international cooperation. Tony Harty, what are your views on this? Well, firstly, um, I just read there the other day that uh, Garda have now assigned a liaison officer to uh, Colombia. Now, he's, he's one of a number. Now, I think that happened some time ago, but they only uh, officially announced it, I think, in the last couple of days. But I read a report about what's going on regarding drug trafficking in the Netherlands the other day. And apparently, the port of Rotterdam has 50 kilometers of dock front. And obviously, an, un- an unimaginable amount of containers are, are land there for, landed there for transferring to other destinations. And there are gangs now in Rotterdam who are employing youngsters. They identify certain containers, are identified for them, and they typically send in about 20 young- youngsters who break into the containers, seize the goods, and get out with it as fast as they can. And apparently, even though there's quite a lot of security there, the um, uh, bribery of security guards, customs officials, it, it is at a staggering level. And apparently there some youngsters, some of those youngsters were trapped in a container there some time ago and there was some movement of containers. They were literally couldn't get out. And the Dutch police and customs did manage to find them. Now, they haven't disclosed how they did it, but it was probably through some sort of phone tracking with that. But reading the whole uh, report of all of this, the appetite for drugs, and this is sometimes what we forget, that the appetite for these drugs is so vast that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a growing business purely because of the demand. And I wonder if... Our law enforcement here is even remotely capable of keeping up with the pace of what's happening. When you think about this, do you think then it's going to get possibly worse? Do you think there are new threats emerging in that area? Well, there are always threats, but the the societal problem of drug taking, I mean, you have the, the impoverished areas where drug taking is endemic. But the level of, of appetite that there seems to be there now from, shall we say, not referring to it in a class system, but in the working, the salary, the working population, the appetite for drugs is at a level that I don't think we're quite aware of. I think it is at, at a level that we, we don't even understand at the moment. And that, of course, because, because of the way it works, it's all, it's all underground, it's uh, it's a revenue stream that's outside of, of actually revenue connection or any kind of controls. I just see this getting bigger and bigger. We'll always be playing. I think we'll, we'll control it to some degree, but law enforcement by its nature is reactionary. 
and responsive. We're not strategic. It's not geared to be strategic because it's it, that is the nature of the service. If something happens, you respond to it. So I think we'll all, we're always going to be playing catch-up, and I do see it getting a lot worse. Michael, you have a lot of experience in this area. Mm. Do you concur with those views? Oh, absolutely. Um, Michael O'Sullivan, the former Garda Assistant Commissioner, who's now head of MAC and the, and the EU drug smuggling organisation, he says... Uh, and he said this a few times on the record, there is a tsunami of cocaine coming. And when you think about it, you know, they, they, Mark have already seized, it's several billion, probably maybe five billion so far this year. And that's up in last year. And that's up in the year before. So, you know, there is a massive appetite, not, not only in Ireland, but, you know, in the whole of, of Western Europe. I think I read somewhere that Western Europe now really is the focus for these for these uh, cartels to make their money because the market is so vast and people have so much money. So, oh yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I remember we interviewed Michael seven years ago and he was talking about how, you know, when the recession came, the the use of cocaine went down. Now the, the, the good times, I suppose, are back. The, the Ireland is much stronger now and people are using more cocaine. So, you know, I I, I, I do believe it is. It's a, it's a massive problem, especially as... The, the suppliers have really turned their attention en masse to Europe and we are obviously part of that. So I think that we have lots of different problems coming in this area. I think that some organised crime gangs are so, no, so well integrated into international criminal networks that we're, the state almost finds it difficult to comprehend. I, I One thing that I, that I have seen in the past year is that we've seen an increase in the use of crack cocaine. We've obviously seen, obviously seen an absolute uh, uh, free availability of cocaine on the streets, plus other drugs. But there are other issues developing in that sphere as well. We've seen a significant increase in uh, computer-related crime, cyber crime, uh, computer-enabled crime, as they would describe it. And we've also seen the advent of edible drugs. I know from talking to my own children that uh, they are coming across and encountering people selling drugs that people eat uh, as sweets and that kind of thing. So these are all new types of problems that the guards and our custom service are probably going to have to deal with on a more increasing level in the months ahead. Uh, Declan, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I think um, it's quite interesting when you, you, when you bring it on down to the ground like that. It, what it really is uh, worth thinking about is that we can't expect to police, deal with those things purely by policing. Uh, and Garda Economic can't uh, ensure that those kinds of things don't get onto the streets in some shape or form. So we need to be thinking more about you know, a parallel, a twin track, or even a, a treble track approach whereby... The state is um, mobilized, mobilizes its whole government resources to try and change our, our approach to uh, drug taking to some extent. Now, that's not going to have 100% success because these things are endemic. But if we just take a few uh, parallels, I mean, cigarette smoking is still a thing in Ireland, but it's nowhere near like it was 30 odd years ago, for example. So could we have a gear shift in drug taking? Well, because let's face it, let's be brutally honest here. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, Ireland has a drug problem is because a lot of people uh, in the middle classes were taking drugs as uh, a source of recreation and they have plenty of money to throw at it. 
they or at least they certainly uh, are happy to use a significant chunk of their disposable income. And you know, it's not the it's you know the same you could have said with uh, prostitution. It's not the the people who are buying it on the street necessarily that are the greatest part of the problem. And um, so you know, if you were to change the marketplace. Uh, then you will be giving the Garda significant uh, support in order to uh, get into the networks at the middle and higher levels and disrupt, degrade, and in some cases, hopefully destroy. So I'm going to move on to the topic of Republican and Loyalist terrorism. 2021 saw the return of street violence by Loyalists in response to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Tony, did you see this as a problem that has the potential to develop? And we'll, we'll discuss uh, Republican terrorism in a little, uh, a few minutes. Well, for some time, I expected something to happen with a lot of the rhetoric that was coming from the uh, parties in the North. And there was a lot of talk and a lot of talk about action, and a lot of talk about what they would do and what would happen and all of this. But I mean, there has been some buses burned and some things like that, but not a lot. Of, of, apart from that, not a lot seems to have happened. But I see they're listening to various economic reports that at the moment in the North, uh, they are having the best of both worlds from an economic point of view. And a lot of the small industries are now exporting to the EU, EU through Ireland and then to the UK through their own channels. And it seems to be working very well for them. And that combined with a lot of um, the money that seems to be freely available at the moment certainly seems to be getting the, the keeping the lid on things. And I think that those that are, shall we say, at the more extreme end of loyalism, their, their, their spokespeople seem to be gaining less and less credibility. And I'm thinking of the comments there in relation to the, the uh, late David, uh, David Tweed in the last 10 days where really um, the, those at the head of that extreme end of loyalism were found to be um, very wanting. They had issued message of support initially and message of condolence, but when the family disclosed the actual problem, they kind of retreated into a very... Um, strange silence and I don't think that's going to help them an awful lot because that is an area which uh, straight away causes a great deal of revulsion and I recall being at a conference a number of years ago when it was a conference on transnational terrorism and how, how intelligence is sh- shared between the various intelligence agencies and it's quite pointed that it's a very selfish type of business because Information uh, gives you uh, power. And by keeping that power within a certain circle, it empowers certain individuals. And the one area that that, that, is, that, that is, I know I'm digressing a little here, where that, is, where that doesn't happen is anything to do with sexual abuse and all the stuff related to paedophilia. That is shared. Now, those people up there have found themselves very exposed with this. And I am sure that that is causing a lot of distaste and I would be expecting that this may cause them difficulties down the line. And when those spokespeople for those fringe loyalist groups, when they start to lose their, their media power, I think it'll have, I expect it to have some sort of a knock-on effect. But overall, I don't see the loyalist threat being anything like what it, was, it, it might or was, was said to have, 
probably happen. I just don't see it. Michael O'Toole, you come from Belfast. <clears throat> Michael, what are your views on this? Uh, I think it's slightly different for you to Tony. I, I'd be more pessimistic. Um, I, I, I just think we're in the end game. Uh, now, this could be five years down the road. It could be 10 years down the road. But sooner or later, I think we're going to be in a situation where, uh, personally, I think you know the move to the, the path towards the United Ireland really is an extra. It, it's a, it's a, but it's a path. It's not an immediate uh, thing. So there are going to be it's like a process. There's going to be you know bumps along the road, and there's going to be various issues. But I do think overall, if you're looking, you know, perhaps from a historical helicopter point of view, I think we are in the end game, and that end game is relatively historically speaking close next. For me, it's been like five, ten, fifteen years. And for me, this is really the big issue. How will strands of loyalism react? Uh, you know, the Republic and the North, Protestants and, and Catholics, I think, you know, the border has ceased to exist a long time ago. And I think uh, an awful lot of people are up and down to the south, down to Dublin. You know, young Protestant people are working in Dublin. So there's not that barrier in a sense that there was so I think an awful lot of people when it does happen of course there's not you're not going to see hundreds of thousands of people on the streets man and barricades you know like the UDA, UDA in the early 70s when they could muster you know tens of thousands of people but I think there's going to be uh, a rub or a significant number of people who will take to the streets sooner or later when it starts to happen and then when you take to the streets it's all about as well as some British Minister said, events here by events. Who knows what can happen? So, you know, a kid could get hit by a police land rover, you know, something. There could be just some things that get in the way. So this is my big, big fear, actually, that there, I think there is a real danger of uh, effectively serious disturbances in the north within the next decade. And I, I mean, we're talking, for me, really, really serious, like 1969 all over again. That's, that's my big fear because I think you know, there's a strand of loyalism when they're under attack, they, they take the streets and they attack Catholics and kill Catholics, and that's mm. their only outlet. And, you know, I don't want to be a, have a doomsday scenario, but, you know, I suppose if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it. And I think their only tactic at the end of the day, it was in the 20s in the pogroms, 69 in the pogroms, so you don't need to be, you know, Britain, Britain or Ireland to see what their tactic is going to be if and when it does happen if I think in the next five or ten years and that's something that is starting for me to, to weigh in my mind more and more because I think we're heading inexorably towards unity <laughs> and there's going to be serious problems about that. Declan, I interviewed uh, Ian Turner, who runs a very prominent and well-respected uh, website called Balaclava Street, and he writes often about the UVF and the history, but he is a generally good and reliable uh, sort of person on loyalism. Do you, What are your thoughts on this? Do you see uh, the potential return of loyalism as a problem next year? Um, no, I, I, I lean towards what Tony said uh, in the short term. But I think uh, Mick has raised a number of interesting points. And I, I want to actually amplify a point that Mick made there at the very end. Because as I was listening to him uh, using the term unity, I, w- I think Mick was using it. If he was writing it, he would have probably used that, uh, put that word in inverted commas. I certainly would. I, I would agree with Mick that we are probably and somewhat dangerously, and I'll expand on the point, heading towards unity, inverted commas. Uh, 
In other words, I think that this country could, when I say this country, the, the Southern Irish state, the Irish Republic, is in danger of sleepwalking into a situation of, get, of you know, they were saying, be careful what you wish for, you might just get it. We don't have any real concept of how to accommodate a million and a half Ulster Protestants into a new type of Ireland. We haven't even had any imaginative thinking about what a new Ireland would be. What we do think is going to happen on average, and this is being based, this is, this is um, indicated by opinion polls, uh, particularly the latest ones that some of the business polls carried out. Irish people are incredibly naive about this whole situation. They think if the six counties have come back into the Republic, which is erroneous in the first place because it was never in the Republic in the first place, like uh, there was never an independent Irish state so this is a whole new ballgame. And people seem to think it's like plugging a flash drive into a, a computer, into a mainframe or something, and that everybody, everything would be hunky-dory. While Mick makes a point about young, educated Protestants from the North coming down to the South for education and uh, job opportunities, I think that's good, but I don't, I don't think it's anything near enough in terms of improving the taunt between our two cultures. And the... The um, surveys, uh, the polls I mentioned in the business post indicate that the vast majority of Irish people can't even consider the fact that the flag or the anthem would have to be changed. And that, that's, if you can't get your head around that, you've no business talking about unification. Because if you look at any other part of the world that has had conflict, South Africa, the Balkans, uh, and parts of Africa, when you bring your know, rival tribes together, you've got to create space for them all and their culture. How are you going to create space for the unionist culture in Southern Ireland when people won't even give ground in the flag and the anthem? It just shows you where we are with mindsets. Now, here is my, my fundamental point is this. Because of that, I think that we are grossly underestimating uh, and taking the unionist community for granted. And they're not on a war footing or anything like it right now. Uh, I don't think uh, loyalism is in a position to, to do much. Uh, but the fact that the unionist community are largely somewhat rudderless and very poorly served by their leaders, both within the DUP and, and, and others, I think... Um, I think the uh, Ulster Unionist Party are making a game effort to try and be broader and, and create a new type of unionism, a new consensus-driven, modern, uh, pluralist type of unionism. But they get precious little thanks for it uh, from down south. And our political class have shown themselves to be incredibly naive and seem to have forgotten the troubles. Just because loyalists aren't in a position to manifest serious physical violence against the state or our interests right now doesn't mean that maybe 10 or more years down the road, especially if we try and shoehorn Ulster Unionists into a state that they feel they're being bullied into, we will reap the whirlwind of that eventually because the Unionists, like, our, like ourselves, will come out fighting if they feel that they're being bullied. We need to get more imaginative in how we uh, uh, gain consensus for unity. But I think I had, I had, a, a chat. Sorry, Michael, Sorry. go ahead. I had a chat. Where I, I, I was talking to somebody... Uh, He's a very, very smart fella, and he's, you know, obviously I'd be quite green, but he and I would share aspirations for unity. And I was, I was asking about, you know, what sort of things he, he envisaged happening, because I don't think, it's not some sort of irredentist, I don't think the 27th Infantry Battalion are going to leave Aiken Barracks and head up store in all their wags someday. It's going to be, for me, it's going to be a gradual thing. It's going to be, you know, you know almost by osmosis or whatever. But one of the things I was asking him, I said, well, look, do you think the PSNI should still exist? Right? Or do you think that there should be a northern parliament? Or, you know, if you look at the example of 
say the Tyrol in Italy, which is German speaking, and it's 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 not independent, but it's got its own auto- it's autonomous, effectively, you know. And I was saying, well, maybe one suggest one possibility is, you know, the North becomes autonomous as part of Ireland. You know, with, uh, the Republic is in charge of defence and all that sort of stuff, but they're an autonomous region. And I was saying, I would, you know, it would make sense for me that the pace and I would have to be kept. I mean, how could anybody think it wasn't? And he was aghast at the very thought. And oh, no, no, there has to be 100%, you know, guards and, you know, you know, 100%, 32 counties, not so but 32 county republics straight away. I, I think people need, I think that goes right. I think people need to start thinking. People need to start wising up and people still need to start looking at this, at what compromises need to be made and can be made for the future. Because people need it, we can't, it's not as if we're going to wake up one day and the trickler's over stolen. It's going to be a very, very different process and everybody needs to be involved in that, from my opinion. But Absolutely, and I just to, to echo Michael's point there, I, I think if they're talking about a citizen's assembly. I, I don't yeah, I don't know about a citizen's assembly because I think a lot of people have far too little awareness and knowledge. I would prefer to see some sort of a select group composed of people who have skin in the game, who have knowledge about this. People like Michael who, who come from the North but who are broad-minded enough to have uh, the imagination because it, it requires fluid ima- uh, imagination and practicality. If you created an autonomous region... Uh, could that be an acceptable thing? But at the moment, if you were to poll most Irish people, yeah, they think, oh, yeah, they, one day the British pull out, the next day the guards occupy all the police stations, the defence forces occupy the barracks, and it'll all be hunky-dory, and unionists will be playing hurling before you know it. And, like, you know, it's, we're, I think as a nation, uh, particularly amongst our political class, we are ridiculously naive. And it, it can be done, but it requires us to move uh, significantly uh, in ways that are, are natural and that are imagined. I remember talking to a senior retired um, uh, officer of the Defence Forces about this. And, you know, some of the statements he came out with were appalling uh, to me on the basis of what he thought should be done and could be done. And that he, you know, and it was all on foot of a conversation that unity is coming. And what I feel is the most, the most dangerous aspect of this is there's a sort of a, a gradual momentum building and Sinn Féin are delighted with it uh, to, to think that it will push a border poll. And we can end up with, you know, with the way Boris Johnson and the current British government are going on, it wouldn't surprise me if two years down the road that they created some fudge by which they could quickly package up the North on a tray and land it at the feet of whoever happens to be mm. the current Taoiseach in whatever government. And there, there you go, guys. Irish unity. We're delighted to be the Conservative Party that brought it to you. Good luck, God bless. And there we will be saddled with one almighty mess. Going back to the possible threats that Ireland is going to face next year, uh, I personally believe that there are a lot of unease within loyalism and it goes back to this concept that the issue remains unresolved in terms of one community wishes to be part of the Republic and another part of that community, uh, as in the loyalist community, don't. Uh, But you also have this uh, issue of loyalist groups fragmenting and all throughout this year anytime I speak to people involved in loyalism or people with a knowledge of what's actually happening up there they've all stated that their big fear is the emergence of a new dissident loyalist group a group that will engage in terrorism as a, uh, to oppose what they see as uh, the reunification of the North and the South of Ireland. And th- that's something that's very, very real. I mean, I've spoken to people who 
are involved in the Loyalist Communities Council, rep- represents the recognised leaderships of the various groups, and they're all very fearful about that. Uh, a number of people, and I'm pretty sure they wouldn't mind me saying this, but they have stated that, for example, some of the disturbances we saw this year, that they weren't quite sure who was organising that. And anyone who's familiar with the concept of terrorism would know that terrorist groups have a habit and a tradition of mutating and changing and learning from the mistakes of their predecessors and transforming into something that no one really sees coming. And I think that's a very, very distinct possibility next year, especially if we have a situation where Sinn Féin, uh, you know, continues to rise in popularity in the Republic and it becomes very, very clear that they are likely to form the next government in Ireland. Tony, do you have any thoughts on that, further thoughts on that? I I think I was listening to what Michael said about extreme loyalism. And my something tells me that if if they are to become active and dangerous to that extent, they will resort to what they always did, what Michael said. They will go back simply to killing Catholics. Um it's 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 a very it's not even a strategy. It's it's mindless and it's a way of venting their anger and letting people know this is us, this is our presence, we we don't want Catholics, we hate Catholics. We had the Shankill butchers. I see there's a, one of the, my, the guys that was involved in the uh, sh- the um, murder of the Miami show band. There were two guys blown up, Harris Boyle and Wesley Somerville. And Somerville was from a little suburb outside uh, one, of the, one of the small northern towns in the state. And ever since he died, there is a mural on the wall commemorating him as a freedom fighter. Now it was quite clear what the uh, uh, what the murder of the, the murder of the Miami showband was, and there was an arrest there some time ago by the PSNI in relation to someone who removed the mural or the plaque from the gable end of the of the house for this is and this estate. Now there was no prosecution. But once the arrest was over, the pack was in place again. And there is a some culture group there. They have a Facebook page and they appear on Twitter. And they are commemorating Wesley Somerville as a freedom fighter and mm. all of that. And that is the type of mindlessness, I think. And, you know, un, uneducated mindless, mindlessness. It's, it is like deep South of America stuff, really, you know. And the, 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 the near enemy, the handy enemy, is the Catholic. And the Catholic postman, the Catholic kid coming and going to school, that's what I fear from this. But I mean, the, target and, but the argument could be sorry, made uh, concerning Republicans do the exact same thing. And people in Sinn Féin and former members of the provisional movement, they all, always celebrate and have celebrated and traditionally celebrate people that were involved in quite extreme acts of terrorism. Excuse me, sir. Can I give you insight into this, John? I was watching, you know, my, 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 my obviously I worked up north, my, my first forays in the journalism were up there. <laughs> I had a, quite a frightening uh, incident with Billy Wright when I was at a protest when I was covering it for the Irish News, and there were thousands of people there for Billy Wright. And, you know, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole watching stuff on, on mm. YouTube and stuff about him, and he, he said something. And there were people, there was broad daylight in one of the estates in, I think, Portadown. And he was walking around, 
people were coming out and there were hundreds of people applauding and clapping him. This was a vicious sectarian killer while he was active. And people were making no secret of their admiration for him. And mm. that really, that killed me to the core that they knew, like he, his gang, I always remember back in the day, there, there was this, they, they, they shot, it was a young girl in a, in a, in a, a mobile cafe, you know, one of those vans, shot her in the face. Right, his crowd were like killing totally innocent people, and he was being lionized in the middle of it by hundreds of people mm. in the state, and it, it just killed me to be honest. So you know, and there is a core of that. There is a there, there is a, a significant strain of that. I think in loyalism that you know, and I'm talking loyalism, not loyalist terrorists, but you know, uh, uber unionists, shall we say? And there is that core of people who I think are quite happy to have violent men amongst them. So that, that's, I'm, yeah, just, I'm, I'm just, I'm very worried about it, I I, I would agree with what Mick said, and I, and I would agree with what you said as well, Johnny, on the basis that yeah, it's echoed on both sides of the community. I mean, look, there's a few home truths that we all have to swallow here. I remember having to give a talk one time about something down in Tipperary, and I, I was—I found it hugely ironic. I was talking in the Danbury Hall, and it was about peacekeeping. And uh, people got a bit shirky with me when I kind of made reference to the irony of talking about peacekeeping in the Danbury Hall, because Danbury, as history proves, is nothing but a bloodthirsty gunman and a murder of unarmed police officers. So, uh, you know, we don't have to just look at the troubles. We have a history in Ireland of bloodthirstiness carried out by all traditions. And the reality at the moment, the, the, the sad reality is the loyalists are the ones that are feeling under threat now. They have this perception. And it hasn't been helped by stances and utterances in recent times by the Irish government. And what I mean by that is I think that the Irish state needs to maybe reach out to more responsible elements. Just like on the nationalist side, uh, there are responsible elements that can be looked at to shore up uh, unionism and loyalism uh, in a a, a useful and responsible way. But they need support. They need to hear certain things said at the right time and not feel they're backed into a corner. Now, I don't think uh, educated unionists feel backed into a corner. They feel a lot of them voters uh, to stay within the European Union. Uh, But at the same time, they are aware that what they feel is their British identity is being eroded by stealth uh, on both sides of the IRC. And, and there's a certain justification to that, uh, to some extent. But on the other hand, we need to, to propagate the idea more that they can be something much more. They can benefit from being both within the UK and within the European Union. They can benefit from both unions. I don't think this has been sold well enough to them. Uh, the British government, and uh, Boris Johnson in particular, let them down completely. They don't trust anything that comes out uh, of the, the, the mouthpiece uh, of, of Johnson uh, in any shape or form. So I think both governments need to sit down and be a bit more thoughtful and imaginative and reach out. I think Doug Beatty is a very uh, worthy leader of mainstream unionism if he gets shored up. And, you know, there was a time when uh, people eschewed having anything to do with anybody that was in terrorism on either side of the divide. And yet those people oftentimes became the key players in getting the peace process over the line. You know, and on the loyalist side, the likes of uh, David Irvine and uh, what was his name, Hutchinson and, and, and Gary McMichaels and, you know, and various other people that all had blood on their hands, but who saw the future and wanted a different future uh, for their people. So how do we bring those people to the front? At the moment, they're feeling under, under an element of siege. And 
how do we change the dynamic? Because certainly today's Sinn Féin aren't, aren't really doing that. I don't think uh, that there's going to be, there's no intelligence indicating any uh, immediate loyalist threat. But let's just paint a scenario here. If they keep feeling under threat and there's a few more instances of their their identity, their sense of Britishness being eroded or taken from them, Sooner or later, you're going to have a drift in. At the moment, most people involved in loyalism are gangsters. You know, low-ranked gangsters, low on brains, big on brutality. But if you started to see a drift into it of people with a more uh, a sense of mission, people who may have had significant service in the British Army, people who know how to organize and do things and uh, execute operations, uh, then you're going to see more than... Uh, Catholic taxi drivers get killed, then you're going to have a, a problem on your hands. They don't have to be big in number if, they're, if they have a capability. Another thing that we, we haven't thought about too is that some of the problems, we'll say they get bounced into a republic. Uh, I could, one other thing I could see happening is like, unionists are uh, you know, quite clever, adaptable people. So the mainstream unionists might think, well, we're not going to go to war. We're not going to take up arms. That would be counterproductive. We're going to... Uh, organized politically, take our seats in all Aaron and be absolutely disruptive every step of the way. And we find then our whole body politic and our whole system is gummed up because nobody thought, what are we going to do with these legally elected, mandated uh, public representatives of unionism who don't want to play ball in our zone? Like, as I said, there's a whole lot of thinking hasn't been done about this. There's a whole lot of gray areas that we don't fully understand. And I just think it's a shame that the bridge building that was done under the tenure of Mary McAleese uh, has been forgotten about. I think there was a, you know, Michael D. Higgins, I, I didn't approve of what he did uh, by not attending the uh, the, the ceremony uh, because what he did, if he had attended it, nobody would have said a word because the man's a canonized saint now at this stage. Uh, by, but he did do us one service. By attending it, he has showed by the mindset of uh, people and how they support it, how one-dimensional we are in this country. And to wind this back to the point you're making, Johnny, tonight, about future threats to Ireland, what we have here is an existentialist threat. We can't say that uh, you're wishing for this republic nirvana, this sort of uh, fantasy, this green fantasy island. Uh, that that, uh, reunification poses to most Irish people, that we could uh, drag up all kinds of problems for ourselves if we don't start to think about how it has to uh, happen in a realistic basis and then start to sensitise ourselves to that. But there's no... uh, there's no movement, no initiative on that coming from the government in any shape or form. But, but, but here's, here's the problem, or the, the issue for me. I, I, meant, I used the phrase earlier, and I think it's really the elephant in the room. It's end game, right? So it's not about, for me, it's not about, you know, unionist politics. There, there, it's going to be a significant rump. And it, you know, let's look at the past as the best indicator of the future. Let's go back to the Ulster Coven. It was 1912. Hundreds of thousands of people were active in that. And I think we're going to have, there are going to be a significant amount of what the PUL, the Protestant Unionist Loyalist Community, who this is the end for them. You know, as in the United Ireland, whether, what iteration of it is, whether it's an autonomous region, whether it's all 32 counties under one government and unitary government or whatever, it's the end game, it's over. And this will be a massive massive blow to them it will 
you know, it'll be the, you know, it'll be, you just imagine if you're a loyalist or unionist and you don't want the United Ireland and it's happened, the worst possible thing that's going to happen to them. And, and so that's why I really worry. I honestly do believe that it is the end game, but there's going to be uh, significant uh, trouble ahead. And we do have to, that's right, we do have to try and mitigate this, but it's happening. So let's make it, let's try and mitigate it, let, let it mitigate the, the, the side effects of the negative aspects as much as we can and start thinking and start addressing things like, you know, anthems, flags, being part of the Congress, all that sort of stuff. Everything is, has to be on the table because the, the alternative is serious, serious conflict, the like of which we haven't seen for 50 years. And what and of really frightening me. and what of Republican terrorism in terms of the new IRA, the continuity IRA? The new IRA has experienced some setbacks, um, but these groups still remain active. They're there. They're organising. Um, I've done a lot of research work on these. I've written a lot about them. I personally believe they've become a subculture within Irish society. That they know they don't really have any the wherewithal to uh, advance their cause but they're now gone into this preservation mode in terms of preserving the IRA for the years and decades ahead uh, Declan do you see them as a significant problem uh, in the coming year? I, maybe not the coming year but similar to what we were saying with regards to militant loyalism I think if violence becomes a factor in the North again, well then it's going to, you're going to see militant Republicans come out of the wood uh, of a certain type. Because the problem is with both loyalism and with the current iteration of uh, militant Republicanism, uh, you know, violent militant Republicanism along the lines of the real IRA, continuity IRA, is that all of these people are very lacking in any kind of political strategy or, or forethought. And when they don't have anybody guiding them in that regard, they're, 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 they will lash out. And if you see, if you saw a manifestation of loyalist violence in any shape or form, then you're going to see a reaction to it by the uh, by the, um, the dissidents, let's call them that collectively. And, one, and just to, add, to supplement uh, something that Michael said, though, I, I agree with virtually everything he said in terms of how, you know, to, to use that collective, the PUL, and... Um, People, if you like, if they get if they get pushed into a corner in a certain way, there will be a, a violent response and a violent reaction then from uh, from Republican groups. Now, having said that, in terms of how we mitigate this, one one area there are many areas to look at, but South Africa I think is interesting in that as I was listening to Michael explain his points, I was thinking of the, the white. A minority who held all the power, who held all the wealth. And everybody thought in South Africa, and everybody thought, well, they'll never release anything without a fight. And you had a lot of airtime being given to Eugene Terre Blanche and these other extremist groupings who were going to fight to the death to hold, make, keep South Africa white. And when it came to it, there was a peaceful transition. Why was that? Uh, because A, the optics changed. You had, you had a character like Mandela, but they were willing to do symbolic things like the flag, the anthem, the, all of those things. But they matter. I mean, people have died for symbols on this island. Uh, we, we know that. But also, they, they did deals, essentially, that meant the white community felt secure within the new South Africa. They didn't particularly like it, but the, the, the intelligent leadership saw what was coming. And I think the same thing has to be done with the unionist community, that there is some sort of a deal done where they, they realize, well, we'll still hold what we have. 
and, and that has to be worked out. First of all, we don't. I don't think they even know themselves what it is exactly they want to hold on to. There's an inarticulation going on there. So the best form of security manifestation we can have going forward is to try and get in there and get a handle on those things. To come back to Johnny's point about the, the, the Republican groupings, well, we can't, you know, I think the biggest danger to happen there will be to ignore them and to think that they've gone away. Just because they've gone into a holding pattern doesn't mean that um, that they can't uh, get a resurgence. Because if the pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that there is a small percentage of people at all levels of society, educated, uneducated, uh, young and old, uh, who have some very strange ideas about how the world should be run, how this country should be run, how governments are formed or not formed. And particularly within the younger cohort, younger people uh, we have a tendency to think that because we live in a more enlightened era, that they will all avoid the uh, mistakes that we made, that this country made in the past. And if those uh, extremist groups exist and people feel a sense of disenfranchisement from the state in some shape or form, well, then they will be lured towards those groups as long as they exist. It's as simple as that. So, yes, they do pose a threat going forward. Tony Harty, you have a lot of experience of dealing with uh, dissident Republican groups, and probably more than all of us put together. What are your views? Do you see the the new IRA, particularly, and the continuity IRA, as a problem in the year ahead? Uh, not particularly, but I'm, the older I get, John, the more I'm inclined to lean towards your view of the subculture and the identity that certain individuals can gain from being a member of a subculture. And I also think there that Dixon is very wise when he's saying that we shouldn't assume that uh, just because we have an enlightened, liberal, uh, young population of freedom, you know, a lot of shackles that we grew up with, you know, control of church, and uh, the control of the church and all that, we shouldn't assume like that they will make very wise decisions because, as he rightly said, when we see some of the, the, the stuff that is going on in relation to healthcare and vaccination and all that, and some of these are very intelligent people, so I think we shouldn't make any assumptions. But I, I, I do believe, I honestly believe that regardless of whether we have a united Ireland or a divided Ireland, militant republicanism, violent militant republicanism, um, will continue to be a feature for generations to come on this island. I think that in, in certain areas and in certain communities and among certain, you know, peer groups, uh, perhaps with people that don't achieve too much, the idea of belonging to uh, something that gives you a certain badge and gives you a certain identity within your own community is very, very appealing. And I think, John, I told you one of the, probably one of the more innocuous uh, things that I dealt with over the years or was a particular young guy earning very good, very good money, uh, but at the end of the week, didn't have um, an ash in his trousers. He had nothing. He was spending all his money gambling and drinking. He was working in a, in a bar during the Celtic Tiger. But he was also helping to facilitate uh, some of the dissidents here in Dublin. He was based about 50 miles outside Dublin. He was helping to facilitate them with uh, storing, storing motorbikes and things like that. So anyway, at the end of three days' detention, when uh, a decision had to be made, the DPP decided to... Um, um, charge him. So he was duly told, I was present when all this was going on. And he, 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 um, the, the procedure is always the same. Initially, they're told they're being re uh, released from custody. And I watched this, this guy just a couple of feet away from him when he was told that he was being released from custody. 
and his face visibly sank. I, it, it was like he was shocked. So I watched this, and then, of course, when he went to the front gate, he was rearrested and brought back again. And you could see his mood had, had increased. So he, the charges from, I think, membership was the initial holding charge anyway. And all of a sudden, his chest filled up. So he asked for a smoke before he uh, went to bed, and some of the young detectives took him out, and I went out, and there was a bit of chit-chat. It was harmless enough stuff. And one of the younger detectives that wasn't with us very long decided to ask him some questions. He said, uh, you know, how did you become a member of the IRA? And, uh, you know, were you asked? Were you sworn in? Uh, did somebody, uh, you know, and he asked him a load of questions. And the guy is casually as could be, ah, no, no, it wouldn't be like any of that. But, you know, you'd always be hoping for it. I've, I've never <laughs> forgotten it. It was, it was an incredible... Now, to my mind, I, I chatted to him afterwards. I... I don't think his IQ or, you know, I don't think, you know, certainly from, I don't want to issue disparaging comments about another human being, but certainly he probably wasn't the brightest of an individual. I discovered, uh, well, we knew actually that his, his father had been involved with the provisionals. But that thing that you have, John, about this culture and that it runs in groups and it runs in families and it runs through tradition, over the years, I, I used to get lambasted sometimes for this, but when I would go to an interview room, and there might be detectives there talking for a while, and I might, you know, take a turn or maybe supervise an interview or something. And the first question I nearly always asked those guys, was this in your family? Because if it was in the family, you were dealing with a completely type of, a different type of individual. The hedge block produced an awful lot of, you know, it was a very emotional time, and it produced a lot of um, provisional. It, 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 it swelled the ranks of the... But a lot of those guys joined to a mix of idealism, vengeance, and all of that. And a lot of them, actually, that never became militant as such, but were there as sympathizers and backup. As the years went by, they all faded into the background again. But those, those of them, that it's there as a hereditary thing, I think it's... I honestly believe it's also going to be there. How effective they will be, very hard to say, because I think the interesting dynamic that's coming is that we have a certain party that's going to be probably the majority government in the next stalls. Now, A, to, to look at what Declan is saying, they are probably going to be the best people, the best place people, to reach out to their former fellow travellers and say to them, look, there has to be a better way. We're in here now. Okay, you know, there, there has to be a better way than this. And I have no doubt that since the inception of the state, the democratic, democratically elected governments here since the uh, War of Independence have dealt swiftly and ruthlessly, if, when necessary, with any rump that became a threat to it, right through de Valera's time. And, you know, the, you know once, once the um, provisions became a threat here, now it wasn't quite as ruthless, but they were, you know, reasonably, you'd have to argue they were reasonably well contained and reasonably well stifled. You know, and as time went on, that was more evident. But to, to finish it, I think militant republicanism, even no matter what type of unity we have, it will be there. Well, I'm going to... Sorry, Michael, I just cut, uh, this is an, air, an area that I spent an awful lot of time uh, investigating and researching. I have to say, I think if there was a 32-county uh, republic in the morning... Dissident groups would still exist. I think these groups have morphed into a subculture that they see themselves as some sort of underground movement. Um, I recently met someone who is generally considered to be among the 
present leadership of uh, the new IRA and I made a reference to him saying uh, or I asked him a question I said if there was a if there was reunification in the morning uh, you would still be involved in this and he made a remark back to me and said you have it in one so I I, I think there's an element of loyalism or a subculture sort of happening within loyalism as well I think these groups see themselves as something else and it's very difficult to explain what that is but I'm completely convinced having uh, spent far too many hours uh, associating with people and speaking to them and speaking quite candidly to them about their beliefs and and, uh, sort of what they want uh, that that they, they are absolutely committed to the, to these causes. I, I, I would disagree with something Tony said on, on, on one particular point, which is I don't think Sinn Féin are in any position to leverage influence on these groups mm-hmm. at all. I think part of the dissident identity is now built on being in opposition to Sinn Féin, which they regard as the mainstream, but also uh, the sort of the, the beholders now of the British presence in Northern Ireland. And in many ways, they, 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 you'll always get peace spoilers within any peace process. But I do think these groups have moved on from that. Uh, they're not particularly concerned about a rigid interpretation of republicanism anymore. They're instead more concerned about the preservation of the IRA, maintaining this underground Catholic army even though it, it's it, it, for for whatever purpose, and I think that may turn into something in the years and decades ahead that we just simply don't understand yet. But but certainly, from my worthless opinion, that that's what's happening at the moment. So I'm going to move on to our next uh, topic, which is the national security threats that Ireland is likely to face in the year ahead. And Declan, I'm going to go to you first on this. So we've seen lots of different things. Uh, happen happening um in the past year or so uh we would uh ireland is facing multiple problems on this front we've hostile states operating on our land sea and air domains uh, we've also hop, uh, hostile states uh having uh, more of uh, sort of participating and checking out our cyber domains do you have any views on this do you think this is going to become a more acute problem in the year ahead uh, yes, um, not just the year ahead. I think um, you know, in, in the decade ahead. I think that if you look at the posture of uh, the Russians, for example, in terms of their their overall strategy of wanting to stabilise the West through largely using soft power and uh, and at times backed up by audacious and uh, cheeky. Uh, intelligence operations of the likes of, or clandestine operations, I should say, of the likes of the uh, scripple poisoning, where they don't really care that uh, people know what they're they're trying to do. But the the cyber side of it for me comes into two falls into two realms, the, le- the level of threat. One is the most obvious one: our lack of technical capacity, as was proven by the. Uh, the uh, degradation of the HSE's ability to function by uh, the, the attack on its uh, system. And that's that's on an organ of the state. Uh, imagine if that attack 
uh, was directed against the state in in its entirety. All of our uh, IT systems, our, our cyber infrastructure, as happened to the Estonians back in 2007 when their country was brought to a standstill, particularly their capital city, Tallinn. And that was done by the Russians as a muscle-flexing exercise. It was, it was a very clever move by the Russians at the time because there was no direct smoking gun. There, you know, if, you tr- if you wound back the information uh, to look at uh, you know, much like uh, the way a police officer would or a police investigator would, looking at somebody who's been badly assaulted or something, do they have any enemies? What were their movements? And so if you were to do that at a, at a geopolitical level with Estonia, they were in dispute with the Russians about the Russians wanted to, I think, I think there was a pipeline that they wanted to go through their territory that it, and it, you know, the Estonians were, were standing their ground. It was a gesture of, of independence. Now, the Russians didn't have to deploy one boot on the ground. They didn't have to do anything that the rest of the world could point a finger at them and threaten sanctions on, and they could deny it as well. And I think the, uh, our lack of capacity to protect ourselves uh, from a technological point of view is going to be seen. We, we, it's not going to be. We're already seen as a weak point at that level, uh, at that nature. The other thing that I would add to that is what I, I suppose I would loosely call a, a sort of, um, shall we say, morale weakness or um, psychological weakness, which and this is the other aspect of what the, um, the GRU, as you well know, Johnny, in particular, a lot of people think of the GRU purely in terms of their ability to manifest clandestine operations uh, uh, on behalf of the Russian state or indeed to engage in special ops like they did in the annexation of Crimea. But they also have quite a a view of the cyber realm, and not just from a technological point of view, but from a strategic point of view of disrupting a, a thought, a, you know, the, the overall discussions and natural discourse that you will have in democracies. So within the European Union, they have made it a strategic imperative to be constantly trawling and uh, injecting themselves into discussion groups and to inject discord and to uh, to rev people up. Uh, so that what's the ultimate reason for this? Trying to divest populations from general support of uh, of, of good governance. Put it mildly, uh, like the pandemic uh, has shown us how that can happen in spite of, of any preparation for anything like that. But the the GRU are very ca- capable of seeing where there are already fault lines within a society and then seeking to exploit them. So uh, you know, you look at a country like Ireland where there's uh, issues as we've been discussing uh, previously, and you simply uh, do a little bit of homework on that, and then you you try and uh, add further fuel to the fire. In whatever uh, whatever the case may be, now they've been clumsy about it in their early earlier manifestations of that, but not uh, they're getting better at it. And I think there is a lack of full realization of this within within the European Union in terms of how to combat that. And these are you know it, it's soft power against weaknesses. And um, the other aspect of this then in terms of national security. Uh, because a lot of people in Ireland, when you mention it, and particularly in pol- at policy-making level, they constantly think about you know, stuff that's related to World War II, or they think about the hard-edged elements. Well, we're not likely to have an invasion anytime soon. Uh, the biggest physical threat to us at one point might have, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't a primary threat, uh, would have been maybe an external visitation of violence, uh, you know, terrorist violence by uh, using us as a proxy platform to attack U.S. or U.K. interests, whether within the state or through the state into the U.K. or something of that nature. And our ability to uh, to deal with that, I think, is um, 
is not as uh, able as we might like to think uh, because things are constantly shifting. And Tony made a statement there previously about um, police work and about how it's largely reactionary in nature. And I, I totally get him. I totally understand where he's coming from. And that's one of the things that probably makes you know, a good police officer has to be constantly you know, scanning his or her local horizon and reacting to. But then it's a very big ask to expect the police to suddenly uh, be able to morph into an institution that can uh, look at national security horizon threats and to be able to uh, respond to that. I mean, I think uh, where Garda Shikana are, are well prepared in terms of very good linkages with other states, but I do think at a strategic level, the state needs to be formulating better um, procedures to identify threats that are relevant to our island. Now, the, there was the creation of the National Security Analysis Centre a few years ago, and I'm sure, as I'm sure you're all aware. They've yet to publish a white paper. I, I'm not aware of them having moved forward significantly. If anything, the pandemic seems to have taken the, uh, the, the, any, any eye that was on them. And they had the potential. They had the potential to be a very useful tool, not so much for combating directly, but for galvanising communication to our policymakers to get them to waken up to threats and uh, allow either the purse strings to be open, or the policy to be created, or the legal measures to be enacted uh, in order to respond to particular threats. And that's, I think, a key area that isn't being exploited are looked at uh, within this state when it comes to dealing with threats from, uh, from external sources. Tony Harty, you spent your career in Special Branch, and Special Branch has a role in confronting these issues, uh, etc. And, uh, you know, you have some experience in this. Do you believe uh, our national security, the threats which the state faces, will continue to develop in the year ahead? All the threat will continue well into the future, and and I have no doubt about that. I mean, we're the, you know, we're the, we're like a little state of America here with our pharma and our um, our tech, the data centers, all that goes. That I mean, we could, oh, you know, from from a commercial point of view, we could almost be seen as a, a fifty-third state. Given the fact then that, you know, we are the only now English-speaking country within the EU, and because we can move so freely, uh, we, we're more of, it's how we can be used by other actors to gain access to other places, rather than, you know, it will threaten us, of course it will, like the health, the health, the health issue, the Department of Health attack, but it's how we can be used to, we'll, we'll almost be like a, another channel or a an instrument uh, to get at to get at the other things, but we're we're very blind here. I think in Ireland, to we're because we're we're not a military power or a superpower or anything like that. We're very blind. I think by nature, it's not a deliberate thing by nature to what goes on. Michael O'Field, do, do, do you have any thoughts on this in terms of? Do you see the threats posed by external actors increasing in the year ahead? Well, I, I'm sure they will, but, you know, the, the overriding emotion I have for me is that we are completely powerless. I mean, we started this conversation talking about, you know, organized crime and the need for an international coordinated response to that. Uh, I, I shudder to think what is happening uh, internationally with regard to Ireland, what actors 
are here in Ireland and what they're at. I mean, you know, mm. for me, it's because Ireland Inc. or the, the, the polity or the body politic has zero interest in any form of defence. And they have no interest. And I think Ireland's strategy is purely to stick its head in the sand, right? And if we can't see it, it's no problem. So, I mean, I shudder to think about this. And I just really worry that we have no coordinated strategy for dealing with any external threat, cybercrime, intelligence agencies operating here. I don't, I don't think we want to know. I just think the powers that be are more than happy being a wee last bit of, bit of rock off the, the west coast of Europe and, you know, we'll, we'll make our money and we're a small country, we're very small militarily and that's just the way it is and there's nothing we can do. So I, I don't think we have any interest in dealing with any of these just problems. To amplify Nick's point there, I think he's, he's 100% right. And I think to, to, to just add an addendum to it, uh, there's there's two ways then this can work. But, you know, how, how we're perceived, uh, if we're perceived as being a weak point, well, that will affect how our neighbours and partners uh, will perceive us. You know, and if we're being perceived as a weak link and that this, you know, attacks that are undermining Europe, uh, for example, or indeed that are undermining U.S., commercial interests in Ireland uh, are, are being carried out uh, or, or there's any kind of degradation uh, activities being carried out by um, foreign uh, uh, personnel intent on, on, on those kinds of activities in espionage well we, we will suffer then we will be seen as a weak link uh, if, even if it's only a perception now the other side of the coin then uh, from, from more an operational point of view which is if there is a serious security threat affecting uh, beyond just the shores of Ireland. Like, you know, the, if Ireland is being used as a platform, well, then, if we're not able to deal with it, there are plenty of others who will. Uh, you know, the, if, if we don't have the national security apparatus to keep our own backyard clean, what, you know, if you, you only have to look at it in other parts of the world, smaller states that are ineffectual, the bigger states, well, it, we're not going to get invaded or anything like that, but we will lose control of the situation. And I want to, you know, history teaches us lots of lessons uh, about, uh, that can be recycled and, and reapplied if we're sensible about it. In the Second World War, you know, we were titularly neutral. We now know that was a lot more complex. But we managed to stay out of being a direct belligerent and therefore protect our people and our infrastructure, uh, a small country that had very little ability to do so. And even if we had declared war uh, on the side of uh, the Allies and the side of uh, Britain, they wouldn't have even been able to protect us initially from the onslaught of air attack. Mm. So what happened was, was a clever enough thinking, Dan Bryan, Colonel Dan Bryan, who's the then director of military intelligence, forged a very effective working relationship and alliance with the acquiescence of the government. Now, what that had the effect of doing was, we all know how belligerent Churchill was, and we know about the speeches, but the reality was Churchill and certain members of the British government were... Uh, haughty about our stance, our independent stance. But the majority of the security and bureaucracy, uh, both defence and civil in the UK, realised that the Irish state was in a safe pair of hands when it came to dealing with espionage because MI5 had this direct line to Brian and they were able to lobby in a way on our behalf so that there weren't any stupid things done. In other words, the message went out to both US and British administrations, the Irish can clean house in their own backyard. They're not going to let the Nazis away with anything. Now, we need to be thinking about that concept today. If we, How can we be uh, Ireland Inc. moving into the future if we can't clean up espionage in our own backyard? 
that's something that our policymakers really need to waken up about. And I, I would echo everything that the, uh, both Tony and Michael have said on this, and, and take it a stage further that you know we, our policymakers, you know, need a nearly a basic education, a kind of a primer. You know, these committees that they have. I often wonder, you know, the Security, um, what is it, the Defence and Foreign Affairs Committee, and then there's um, there's another Justice and Home Affairs or something words of that nature, and. You know, I've come across the different people that, that sit on them, and their lack of grasp is stunning. And I'm sure you've all been down this road as well. Mm. And it, that's what annoys me, is that the lack of, of grasp of the simple things. Let's not even go near the, the complex things. Just understand the basic things and the, the way things get conflated and mixed up and twisted from a historical point of view or from a, a local political perspective. If we, if we could only get uh, maybe what we need or better better mo- uh, modes of communication and lobbying about certain issues like this because the message isn't getting through to them. Maybe what will cause this to change, like so many other things, were a uh, change for the better um, and Ireland was dragged screaming and roaring into the 21st century, was our membership of the European Union. Maybe that would be the conduit by which uh, pressure would be put on the body politic to have to take this element more seriously well if i could just interject there because i've documented a lot of this in recent years but but there is an absolute concern abroad amongst european countries and also the united states about what is happening in ireland because we've got all these very big uh, tech scientific pharma companies based here and we have an increasing presence of hostile states particularly with russia uh, their intelligence mm. services and their military intelligence services are operating on a regular basis now within Ireland. But I think the biggest threat that we have or that we experience around all of this is actually our own approach to this, that it is almost, if you raise this as a problem or you try highlight it, there are certain body people out there that believe you are in need of psychiatric help. If you mention anything got to do with, for example, influence operations with China, um, people look at you as if you're uh, also in your you're overstating or, or exaggerating a problem that may not be there. So, so that effectively, what everyone is saying is is that there's a significant issue with our approach to this. These are problems that other countries across Europe and indeed in the West are dealing with, but. Part of the problem with Ireland is our own attitude to it and this kind of cultural belief that this couldn't happen to us or we can't have this problem because it's just not something that uh, we've experienced in the past. Is, is that correct, Declan? Yes, uh, I, I, I think you've put your finger right on the pulse of the whole thing. Um, I, I think that, yeah, there, I would add one additional thing, that there also what doesn't help matters um, when you're trying to bring, you know, shine light onto activities of foreign powers such as Russia or China, is that you have people dotted around of a certain generation that are influence, uh, influential within policy circles who would have had lean certain directions uh, back in the day politically, uh, maybe to... They were mixed up with groupings that were a mixture of militant republicanism and extreme left thinking. And there is a certain degree of 
and who are, are free, really, from actual political appointment, that they're appointed purely because of their professionalism. That's one of the areas I think we... I, I can't see it happening, but I think it's an area we would need to go to to even get a start on this. Yeah, yeah and just to... I, yeah, and do you know what's ironic? A, a, t, a TD appointed to either justice or um, yeah. defence, you know, the, the ministerial post, are more likely to spend more time thinking about who they'll appoint as their press advisor yes. than they would yes. to have. You know, I mean, that's important too, obviously. But, I mean, you would think, if you were going, there's two posts, and do they ever look to appoint uh, at least one advisor that has field experience, you know, in whatever shape or form. And they don't have to have been a serving member of uh, either the Defence Force and Garda Shikona, or they could have a combination okay. of experiences. But they've never done, they've never appointed uh, anybody who that, uh, you know, has significant, uh, you know, who covered this in the media for lengthy periods, or who maybe has worked abroad in a role that would have given them a lot of knowledge about these matters. They've never, never done that. And, uh, and that would be a voice that would be outside of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And that would give them a, a specialist knowledge in terms of, like, the reform that's supposed to be taking place the Defence Force Commission. I mean, it's it, it's garbage, to say the least. And it's largely because the, the, the commission team, well, there wasn't enough, the, 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 there was political thought about it, but there wasn't professional thought about it. And that's where our policymakers, when it comes to matters of a security nature, whether it's home affairs security, whether it's external security, they always lack somebody to translate for them. The Aussies and the New Zealanders, uh, it created something that we were trying to copy in, in, with NSEC. They created the, the Bureau of National Assessments, I think they call it in Australia, and the National Bureau of Assessments, just to be slightly different, the Kiwis call it. And what that allows for, it's a mechanism that does what Tony just mentioned. It allows the state to recruit in or have seconded either serving members uh, from the uniformed services, including the, the police, or from the uh, they have national intelligence agencies as well, or people who are from completely out that, outside of that, who are maybe academics, uh, media practitioners, uh, individual contractors, consultants. So they, they can pick in who they want for a period of time. And their job is to give an analysis of the information the intelligence that has been collected by the established agencies. And then the government are getting this sort of um, additional insight that isn't part of any particular tribe within the established security services. And, you know, we, in fact, should do that. But at the moment, I can just see it acting as a little kind of political echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going to conclude on that note. I think it's correct to say that our panellists have identified various security threats which will feature in the year ahead. Organised crime is probably going to develop and it's not going away anytime soon. Our panellists remain of the firm view that loyalism uh, may become a significant problem in the years ahead, partly for a combination of lots of different reasons, including the discussions about reunification, the the erosion of loyalist and unionist culture in Northern Ireland, uh, and the perceived increase and dominance of republicanism uh, in the the Dáil and indeed throughout Ireland. And on the national security front, uh, our panellists Uh, And correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but everyone seems to believe this is an emerging problem, which is only going to get worse for lots of different geopolitical, 
ideological and cultural reasons in this country. Um, that is something I personally subscribe to. I think um, this whole area is being ignored to a degree at our peril and I think there's lots of other countries um, uh, such as the United States and other European nations watching what's happening in Ireland um, with, with a degree of concern all countries face this problem, but the reaction of the Irish state and our defence and security forces is very, um, uh, it's confused in some ways. And the lack of debate about this, in, in fact, makes us more vulnerable to it. So on that note, I would like to thank our panellists for their contributions tonight. I would like to thank Declan Power, I would like to thank Tony Harty and Michael O'Toole who recently uh, was awarded Crime Correspondent of the Year uh, at the Irish National Media Awards and I would also like to thank you, our listeners for your continuing support we hope you will join us again soon (laughs) 